All right, so we are uh, getting further along in understanding this three trees diagram. We've spent the last couple weeks talking about the thorny bush, which, as I remind you, uh, the, the heat at the top is the, the pressures of life, the circumstances of life, both the challenges as well as the blessings. And we all have those things, right? We, we all have unique and different experiences that, pro, uh, that produce things in us that come out of us. And they can produce uh, thorns, they can produce ungodly responses, attitudes, uh, emotions, behaviors, words, or uh, they can produce out of us godly responses uh, in all of those different forms. And the reason we're here is because we all know that when faced with challenges, sometimes even when faced with blessings, the reality is we, we do have those things in us and that come out of, come out of us that we don't want. They are, first of all, displeasing to God, most of all. Uh, they're unpleasant to us. We don't like them. And they are unpleasant to others, uh, either directly because of how it, you know, we're attacking others in some form, or it affects others indirectly by just being around us and us being prickly, if you will. And so uh, we've talked about how uh, the Scripture teaches that whatever comes out of us uh, is explained by what's in us. It's our desires, it's our beliefs, it's our uh, values, priorities. And so when we see those things come out of us, we can look not to what's outside of us in terms of our environment, in terms of our upbringing for the purpose of blaming those things, but rather we look to the inside and what is it in me that's producing those thorns. I uh, hope you had some time this week to look through that list of x-ray questions and really consider with regard to the issue that you want to grow and change in, what are some of the answers uh, to those questions that help you think through the, the desires, the the motivations that give rise to that particular thorn that is coming out of you. If you haven't had a chance, please um, take the time, uh, even this coming week, and really consider those things. Because if you don't know what's inside of you, then you don't know what you can actually address. All right. But today, we're going to move to the second tree, the cross. And this really gets us to the hope and the resource and the power that we have in Christ to change. So this is where we start having the encouragement of, okay, yes, these things are in us, they come out of us, but man, there's hope for change. Uh, we really can change. We don't have to resign ourselves to, well, I'm just always going to be like this. Uh, we, we don't have to say, well, this is just what I'm like. We, we shouldn't say that to other people. Just get over it and get used to it. Uh, no, uh, we, we can grow and change. And again, uh, that word cope that has been mentioned a couple times, I, I hate that word because it ignores the, the privilege, the power, the resource that we have in Christ to grow and change. So how does the cross, how does the gospel help us grow and change? Well, that's the lesson for today. Uh, the video is going to be about 15 minutes, uh, but just for the sake of uh, repetition, for the sake of learning, let me just throw out the general concept of, of what we're talking about. 
We'll watch the video, and then we'll look at Romans chapter 6 to emphasize the, the principle that we're talking about today. And that principle is that because we are purchased by Christ, because we are regenerated by the Spirit, because we are no longer slaves to sin, we no longer have to sin. The believer cannot say, I can't. I can't change. I can't do anything different. I can't learn how to respond differently. When there's a, a pattern of sin in the heart, the believer, uh, at, at worst, should be honest and say, I don't want to change, if that's the case. But a true believer in Christ, who has the indwelling Holy Spirit, can always say, by the grace of God, I can grow and change. Why? Again, because of what God, Christ has done for us at the cross. He's paid for our sin. So the, the penalty of sin is taken away. We are no longer bound to experience the wrath of God that had been hanging over us. He's also broken the power of sin. Whereas before we were enslaved to sin and really could do nothing but sin, what Christ did at the cross is He broke the power. He broke the chain of sin, if you will, such that now we have the ability, which we did not have before, we have the ability now to say no. Say, I don't have to respond the way I've always responded. I can respond differently. I can uh, think differently. I, I can feel differently. And that comes from the work of Christ in uh, overcoming sin through his death and resurrection. And that's, again, what we'll look at in Romans 6 after the video. All right, so with that in mind, uh, let's watch this and then we'll come back. All right, take your Bible if you have it and turn to Galatia, or excuse me, uh, Romans chapter 6. I want to start by reading through the whole chapter so you get the, the flow of Paul's uh, argument, his admonition. And then we'll come back and uh, really think through what, what is the basis for uh, what he's saying here. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, um, now let me keep going. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, this may not be true for everyone, but I suspect that many of us, when we think about growth and change, we think very specifically about, okay, I, I have these things in my life that I need to get rid of, and there's other ways of, of living that I need to add to my life. And we think in a very kind of behavioristic kind of way, that what matters is, you know, what, what is coming out of me. So I need to stop doing that, I need to start doing this, right? And we've talked about the process of change from Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, that we are to put off unrighteousness, so that's certainly necessary. And we are to put on righteousness, that's certainly necessary. But we often miss that middle step, uh, which is, or that middle engine, if you remember the engine, uh, that, which is renew the mind, right? Where we have to learn to think differently, and so what Paul does here is, yes, he spends a lot of time talking about put off, stop being a slave to sin. And he spends a lot of time talking about put on, submit yourselves or, or uh, submit yourselves to God as a slave to righteousness. But he starts the chapter by renewing our minds, by reminding us what is true about us. What is it that is true about us? What is he trying to to remind us of there in the early part of the chapter. <laughs> what is it that Paul is trying to remind us of so that we would renew our minds? I know I don't ask a lot of questions. <laughs> who we are in Christ. Okay, who we are in Christ. What else? I mean, we could probably get more specific than that. What are the specific truths that Paul is... Yeah, all right. 
Okay? We're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new master. What else? Yeah, our old self has been crucified. We have a new heart. What else? We've been set free. What else? Yes, because of what Christ has done. Anything else? Uh huh. That we can walk in newness of life. Okay, <laughs> so just let's look at the text. I know a lot of you are looking at it. Uh, just as an interesting side note, there's debate on this passage as to is, is uh, you notice that Paul uses the term baptism uh, in verse 4, um, in verse 3 as well. So the question is, is this a wet text or is this a dry text? <laughs> Meaning, is he talking about when a believer is baptized physically, when they're put under water, is that when these things become true of us? Or is it more of a spiritual reality? Well, um, without going into all the reasons, I'm pretty sure that this is a dry baptism. Meaning that once we are saved, the moment we are saved, we are immersed in Christ. That's what the word baptism means means that we're, we're united to Christ, we're immersed in Christ, we now wear the robes of the righteousness of Christ, and it's because of that that these things are true of us, so just as a side note there. So Paul says, verse 2, you know, in terms of how uh, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, you know, if that was all he said, uh, we would say, all right, Paul, uh, sure, uh, I've died to sin, but man, this is, <laughs> this is really hard. You know, the, the reality of sin in this world and in my own heart uh, really makes living in sin easy, right? And so that's why he has to go on and give us more details. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So symbolically, and really spiritually, our union with Christ is such that when Christ died, we died with him. The old man, as he refers to it in verse 6, our old self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. There is a real death that has taken place in our lives. Now we don't often feel that. We feel like, man, the old self seems pretty much alive. <laughs> it, it feels strong. It feels enticing. It feels controlling. How can Paul say that it's dead? Because it, it seems to exert a whole lot of influence in our lives, doesn't it? Well, I think the reason he can say that, number one, is because it's true. And... The reason we say, I don't know, Paul, it seems like the old self is, pretty much, is very much alive, is because we give the old self power. That's what Paul talks about when he says, stop uh, uh, submitting yourself to sin as a slave of sin. We might be hesitant to acknowledge it, because we're certainly not consciously thinking of ourselves doing this. But the reality is, as believers, when we sin, we are giving 
the flesh power. We're allowing it to take control of our lives, of our thoughts, of our emotions, because we're, we're not choosing to believe what is true about us. If we were to choose to believe what is actually true about us, we would tell the flesh, much like you know he talked about in the video, no, <laughs> I don't have to get irritated. No, I don't have to get angry. No, I don't have to say words that are destructive to other people. No, I don't have to give in to this temptation to a sinful behavior. I don't have to give in to uh, immorality or the, the desires, the lusts of the flesh. We actually can say no. Why? Because we've been crucified with Christ. That is reality. And the reason we don't feel it to be true is because we've been giving in to sin for so long that it's become natural to us. Now, it was natural to us before salvation, and so we've allowed that to carry on. You remember uh, the Y diagram um, that uh, Jeff Miller uh, talked about a few weeks ago? You know, where we, we have a point of decision. On the one hand, we can choose to please God. On the other hand, we can choose to please self. When we go down the path of pleasing self, or either path we go down, uh, we are cultivating habits. So you get down the path far enough, And what you have are habits of life. Habits of sin or habits of righteousness. You know, when you see somebody respond to a difficult situation in a godly way, they're patient, they're kind, they're loving, they're resisting temptation, you know, in the face of a difficult circumstance that otherwise you would think would be easy for them to, to be uh, ungodly. The reason they've, they're able to do that it's not because they've been living a sinful life and then in this one moment they had a, a spark of spiritual energy that they could finally resist sin. No, no, no. It's because they've been walking down the path of pleasing God bit by bit, day by day, over the course of time that now they have that, that spiritual strength. The Spirit has worked in them, the spiritual muscles, to be able to respond in a way that's like Christ. On the other hand, when, when we give in to the flesh when we have the habit of thinking in certain ways, desiring certain things, uh, acting out in certain ways, that just becomes instinctual. Which is why the proverb says, uh, depending on what translation you use, I like the King James on this one. Uh, I believe it's Proverbs 15, 13. King James says, the way of the wicked is hard. Uh, other translations, more modern translations say, the way of the treacherous is their ruin. And what that word ruin, or what's in the King James hard, means is it's a rut. A rut in a road. Now, our family, when we lived in California, we uh, would... I don't know how many times we did it, but on a, a number of occasions, we would drive up to Washington to visit my family and then drive back. It was about a three-day drive. 
and we lived very near the uh, I-5 uh, in California, and my family up in Washington was right off the I-5. So there was one highway that we were on the whole time, except for all the bathroom bake bricks and restaurants and all that. Um, there were certain sections of that road that had incredibly deep ruts because there was a lot of trucks, uh, semi-trucks, transportation vehicles that would take that road and had been doing it for years. And so there were sections where you had to be very careful so that you didn't get in a rut. And we have this colloquial phrase, I feel like I'm stuck in a rut. And we all know exactly what that means. It means we've gotten ourselves in a position where we feel like we have to keep going. We're, we're not able to keep or to get out of it. You know, when you're driving, you have to be careful because if you swerve out of that rut, there's the potential that you lose control, right? Spiritually speaking, the reality is when you get stuck in a rut, you've just cultivated a pattern so long that that's what's familiar. That's what's comfortable. That's what's easy for us. And that happens, again, when we travel the same path over and over and over again. The glorious truth is that in Christ, we are never in a spot where we can't get out. There's always exit signs, or off-ramps, I should say. There's always the ability, as a believer in Christ, to say, no, I'm not going to keep responding this way, I'm not going to keep acting this way, I'm not going to keep thinking this way, I can change because I've been crucified with Christ. I just don't have to keep going down this path anymore. Now verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the, uh, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For the unbeliever, they'll get in that same position, right? Where they're just stuck in a pattern of sin. A pattern of behavior that is unpleasant to them, undesirable. Whether it's you know, alcohol addiction or drugs or uh, pornography addiction or whatever it is anger, um, because uh, they, rec- they can recognize that. They're like, man, this is terrible. My life is being ruined. I'm ruining my relationships, losing my family. They can see the impact of their sin very often. Maybe, not, not always, but very often. And they're like, okay, i got to change. i got to get off of this behavior. So that's why we have uh, rehab centers you know, for addictions, we have you know, psychologists and therapists who can help deal with the challenges of life uh, for unbelievers. The problem is uh, they don't know what is the better way to live. And so often what that means is they, they might be able to stop whatever they're stuck in, but they uh, uh, replace that with something else that, at least from God's perspective, is equally ungodly. Now, we, we might say it's less problematic, but again, from God's perspective, it's not pleasing God <laughs> that they're aiming for, it's something else. Um, 
maybe I've mentioned before that one time I met with a, a man who came in to our counseling center, and he was, an, uh, he was a self-professing unbeliever, but he'd gone through all the rehab centers, and nothing seemed to work in his life. And what was his problem? Well, he wanted to quit smoking. Well, sorry, he wanted to quit drinking. He was just a rabid alcoholic. And as I was getting to know him and hear his background and everything, came to find out that the reason he became an alcoholic is because he had tried to quit smoking. And so he, he replaced smoking with alcohol. And uh, wouldn't you believe it, alcohol had far more disastrous effects in his life than smoking. That, that's the path, that's the way that unbelievers tend to, maybe not in that extreme in every case, but the, what they'll replace it with is something that's ungodly. Here, Paul says that because we've been raised with Christ from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. So for us, again, we have the ability not just to replace sinful behavior with sinful behavior. Okay, I'm going to stop blowing up in anger, so I'm just going to shut up and you know, not, not say anything. Well, that's not godly. That's not uh, enabling you to resolve conflict in a way that's honoring to the Lord. Um, you know, think about the examples in Ephesians 4, you know, for the thief. Okay, I'm just not going to steal anything. Well, that's good. But biblical change is uh, work so that you can have enough to give. Um, what's the other example that he uses there? You know, lying. Instead of lying, I'm just, I'm just not going to say anything. Well, no, there, we need to be truth speakers, right? So when, when we think about our lives, when you think about that particular area that you want to see the Lord bring about change in, you not only need to think about getting rid of the sinful response, the unhelpful uh, uh, thorns that are coming out of you, you have to think, what would it look like to please God in these situations? What thoughts, what emotions, words, actions would not just be different than what I normally do, but that would actually please God? Because we're aiming for a new life that is like Christ. Now look at verse 5. He says there, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a res- resurrection like His. Now that's, there's, there's two aspects of that. One is just the reality that we're new creatures in Christ. We're made alive. And so now we again have abilities. We have capacities. We have, we have the ability to say yes to righteousness, no to sin and uh, please God in our lives. But there's also a future orientation to that, the recognition that this life is not all there is. Uh, There is a future resurrection that's coming. We're going to see Christ face to face. Uh, We're going to be like Him. We're going to be vindicated in uh, the, the righteousness that, uh, that we've had in this life where people have wrought, thought wrongly about us. Uh, all sin will be done away with. All that is wrong 
will be made right. I think one of the problems that produces, or one of the wrong thinking that produces sinful responses in us, is that we tend to think of life in very narrow band. We tend to think about our lives in terms of this life, sometimes in terms of you know, the here and now. Uh, I have to do this, I have to respond in this way, because if I don't, bad things will happen. Uh, if I don't retaliate, if, uh, if I don't protect myself, if I don't uh, guard against people thinking wrongly about me, um, if I don't show other people what, what is true about me now, if I don't defend myself uh, in, in that sense, uh, you know, bad things will happen. I'll have a bad reputation, people will think wrongly, that kind of thing. Well, if you think of life from the eternal perspective you realize that the here and now really doesn't matter very much at all. If we have the mind of Christ, uh, which is that life is eternal and everlasting, then we can weigh what are the problems and challenges of this current situation. What What are the threats, if you will? This is why Paul, uh, Peter could say in 1 Peter 2.21, when he's talking about suffering unjustly, he points us to Christ, and he says, For this reason, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Uh, he who uh, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, he was reviled. He didn't revile in return. Uh, he suffered He didn't utter threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now again, I don't know all the circumstances in your life, but what really matters to you? The judgment of men and women? What they think? How they would perceive you? Or the judgment of God? Are you able to look at your life, the circumstances of your life, and consider, you know what? God knows what's true. God knows you know, what's actually happened. He knows the motives of my heart. He, uh, he, he knows all that's taken place. I can trust that in the end, He will judge rightly according to His perfect justice. I don't have to seek justice here and now. And again, he's talking about unjust suffering. Uh, People uh, thought wrongly about Christ during his life. Talk about that in the message today. And people have thought wrongly about Christ ever since. Billions and billions of people know the name of Christ and they have totally wrong thoughts about Christ. And you know what? He lets them have them. There will come a day, though, <laughs> when the, the dead will be raised. And I don't know what it will look like. One by one, uh, there will be a procession where each individual will stand before God. And they will be rightly judged for their sin, for their rejection, for their wrong thoughts about God. And that determination will last forever. You know, the 50 
80 years of this life are nothing compared to eternity. So we need to look at our life and consider when I get to heaven, I see Christ face to face and He's giving me a new understanding and a new perspective, an eternal perspective. And I look back at this moment. What will I think about the situation? How will I weigh the dynamics of the situation? Uh, will it be as significant as I'm thinking about it right now? Will I have the same concerns uh, then as I have now? And that will help us to really think through what is a God-honoring response uh, in the situation. I think that's vital to think about the fact that we will uh, be raised uh, in the resurrection with him. Well, uh, verses 6 and 7 continue to, to affirm the same things. I think because of how you know, we, we can be so dense in our hearts to receive this truth, he just affirms it time and again. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set freed, has been set free from sin. Do you think about yourself as having been set free from sin? Are you convinced of that reality? I don't mean by that, do you feel that reality? <laughs> I mean, can you affirm that truth and tell yourself that that is true? That's what Jesus did at the cross. He cut off that power of sin in our lives so that we can walk in newness of life. I would tell you, these, these things are just bedrock truths that we just need to get ingrained into our souls. I think so often, uh, based on my experience in talking with a lot of people, especially in counseling, we think about the cross, we think about the gospel in terms of what a person needs to believe in order to become a Christian, in terms of what we believed when we became a Christian, right? We, when we do our membership interviews, we ask people uh, their testimony. We ask them their explanation of the gospel. And uh, the reality is, and, and you know, this is not a problem, but that's always fixated on um, uh, the past. When, when I became a Christian or my growing understanding as I grew in Christ uh, in terms of the reality of salvation. The other context in which we think about the gospel is evangelism. How do I explain the gospel to somebody else so that they can become a Christian? The gospel is for believers every day and every moment of the day. We need to believe all that Christ has done for us and grow in our understanding of the implications that flow out of the gospel. That's why... Uh, I've taught the class a couple times, uh, the gospel for life. I'm sure many of you have taken that. That 13-week uh, class just kind of really introduces the idea of, as believers, we need the gospel for our lives. Uh, but here in this lesson, the focus is the, the breaking of the power of sin, the, the new life that we have in Christ, 
And so then next week we can continue to think through our identity in Christ. How do our various identities that scripture uh, tells us about help us really think through uh, what God desires to accomplish in our lives and produce growth and change? And as we learn and grow in those things, uh, I think the Spirit will help us um, overcome the, the sin struggles, the suffering that we experience. Any particular thoughts or comments at this point? Yeah, Lawrence. Um, in verse 6, um, said that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Um, the word might kind of gives me a little bit of pause. <laughs> I, I was thinking, why not will, but yet might is used in this particular verse. Yeah, um, part of that. Uh, is a grammatical issue. <laughs> um, the word in order that, uh, hadi in the Greek, um, always is followed, always without exception, is followed by a subjunctive, which is a might or maybe, not maybe, but may be. Uh, so it's often translated that way into the English. But that is not intended to communicate a lack of confidence. So a part of it's just purely a, a translation issue. Uh, and then also just uh, even with the English as it is, uh, the might um, just expresses purpose. And so, you know, we might say something like, uh, I might be able to make it on Saturday. And of course, we're expressing doubt or the, at least the possibility that it won't happen. Um, but we can also use that same word to express confidence, um, and, you know, I'm just trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Um, uh, um, Steady you might be, become president. Uh, that, there's a lot of doubt in that one. <laughs> well, if you're encouraging someone, you're, you're, you're trying to say, this can lead to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The example that's coming to my mind is, you know, we need to preach the gospel so that many people might come to Christ. And at least as I'm thinking of it in that way, we're not expressing doubt, but it's just expressing a purpose. And, and that's really what Paul is doing there. It's just ex expressing a purpose. And of course we know from the rest of Scripture that that's exactly what's going to happen. I appreciate the question though. All right, let's pray.